must be considered ontologically in order to be understood ethically. This was the device with which he would examine modernity's most consuming crisis, meaninglessness and its discontents. His lectures could not have come at a more paradoxical moment in American culture and religious life. The post-war recovery was well underway, and with it the rise of a cultural optimism in a country which had both won the war and defeated the Depression. Material prosperity was an ambition and a fact of life. America was now the defender of the free world, and with that fact came a sense of self-satisfaction and security. Religion participated in this boom culture with a marked increase in church attendance and an epidemic of church-building programs across the country, which Time magazine called America's Religious Edifice Complex. Billy Graham was filling America's largest public spaces with his crusades. Norman Vincent Peale was perennially on the bestseller list. And Bishop Fulton J. Sheen was almost as popular as comedian Milton Berle in the new leveling medium of television. At Harvard University, the new young president, Nathan Marsh Pusey, was busily reviving the Moribund Divinity School with an infusion of new millions from John D. Rockefeller, Jr., and new and vigorous theologians. Tillich himself would join that faculty in 1955, and on March 16, 1959, his picture would grace the cover of Time magazine. Religion was experiencing one of its periodic flourishings in American life, and, this time, it appeared to be here to stay. Tillich, however, was not quite so persuaded of the depth or permanence of America's latest revival of religion. In the middle of the religious boom of the 1950s, in an article entitled The Lost Dimension in Religion, in the June 14, 1958 issue of the Saturday Evening Post, then the most popular magazine in America, Tillich wrote, If we define religion as the state of being grasped by an infinite concern, we must say, man in our time has lost such an infinite concern. And the resurgence of religion is nothing but a desperate and mostly futile attempt to regain what has been lost. Tillich was not easily impressed by expressions of popular piety and the building boom in churches, and it was to the subject of what had been lost, the so-called lost dimension in religion, to which he turned in the courage to be. In our age of intellectual specialization and the marginalization of religion from thoughtful society, and of compelling ideas from much of religion, it is difficult to imagine a theologian being taken seriously by anyone other than other sympathetic theologians. Paul Tillich, however, was taken very seriously by the culture at large, as well as by theologians. The publishers of Time and the Saturday Evening Post knew what they were doing when they gave over their pages to Tillich, for people were prepared to hear what he had to say, even if they did not always understand it. He was, after all, the incarnation of the German, Herr Doctor Professor. Tall and elegantly disheveled, he spoke ponderously and with a heavy German accent, theology's answer, as it were, to science's Albert Einstein an eminent intellectual who managed to capture the popular imagination. From his platform as a professor at New York's Union Theological Seminary during the 1930s and 1940s, Tillich gained his reputation as a critical and articulate philosopher of culture,
appealing to new audiences across the country, eager for more than the popular preaching of the day. As a new generation of teachers of religion and philosophy, who had heard and read him in their own student days, went to fill appointments in America's colleges and seminaries, they introduced their students to the work of Paul Tillich. By mid-century he was a ubiquitous figure on the college lecture circuit and beginning to have an impact. After the publication of his 1952 Terry Lectures as The Courage to Be, Tillich became a genuine intellectual celebrity, with his book appearing on practically every college's reading list. It was the stuff of college bull sessions on religion. Preachers and professors borrowed freely from it, and it became what one might call an iconic book, that is, a book that everyone has heard of and most felt that they ought to have read. My first encounter with it was in my freshman year.